I remember after we got divorced, Amber used to call me Disneyland Dad. <laughs> That's what she called me. She just said, you let them get away with everything, and every time they're with you, it's all fun, fun, fun. You know, because obviously they lived with her, and then when they would come and spend weekends with me, it was always about going out and having fun. And Yeah, Disneyland Dad. I'll never forget that. <laughs> At the end of our last episode, we left Tony at the far side of a crossroads, unable to get the Oxycontin he needed to function. Tony suddenly felt like he was out of options for feeding his habit. What he didn't know yet was that there actually was an option. Heroin. Basically, the same drug, but way cheaper, and available on the street, if you knew where to look. So many Americans who'd gotten hooked on Oxy made the switch to heroin. And that decision to switch by itself, makes a twisted kind of sense. But what I really wanted to understand is how Tony went from being Disneyland dad to this dad. The one Connor Hathaway remembers well. I knew he was home from work, but other than that, I was just kind of doing my own thing, and then he came in the room, you know, because he knew I was up to something. (laughs) Connor was a sophomore in high school at the time, or maybe a junior. He doesn't exactly remember. And by then, he lived with his dad in a townhouse not far from where he grew up. One day, he was hanging out in his bedroom with a friend when Tony came up to check on him. He did that. Connor was often up to something. He comes to my room and says, what are you guys doing? I'm like, uh, smoking. (laughs) And he's like, what, is that Oxy? I was like, no, but yeah, pretty much. And he's like, well, shit, give me a hit of that, damn it. And I'm like, what? Okay. (laughs) You know, I'm like, but just so you know, it's not not Oxy, it's, it's heroin. And he's like, well, what the fuck are you doing heroin for? I'm like, it's the same thing, you know? It's the exact same thing. And he's like, well, fuck. I mean, I'll never forget that day. You know, this is at the time where I'm paying 100 bucks a pill for Oxycontin. I'm, I'm out, and I ended up super, super dope sick. Tony was just incredibly dope sick, barely functioning. I'm just basically curled up in a ball. I can't go to work. I can't do anything because I'm so sick. You can't eat anything. You cannot drink anything. You get dehydrated. You get sleep deprivation. And you basically just start going crazy. But, you know, he's like, well, this is basically the same thing as it's an opiate. You know, I'm thinking, well, fuck, I've never done heroin before. I've never even seen heroin in my life. Not only I've never seen heroin, I've never known anyone that used heroin. I mean, it seems scary to me, but I'm so sick. I'm like, okay, I'll try it. So I remember put a little piece on the foil and I smoked it. And literally within five minutes, I was 100% better that fast. I mean, it fixed me. It, you know, it brought me back to feeling like a normal person. I'm not sick anymore. I mean, like I'm instantly good. So he found out real quick that I was telling the truth. It was the same thing. (laughs) That was it. After that, we just started smoking together. It seems completely crazy in the abstract, this decision that ended up sending their lives even further off the rails. But you can't judge this moment in the abstract. On that day, neither father nor son was looking very far into the future. They were simply trying to solve the problem of that moment. Once I did that heroin, I smoked that, and I was like, that's it. We're good. This is where we're going now. (laughs) I mean, because it's, you know, I I still got to (laughs) work. I got to go to work, and I can't go to work if I'm dope sick. So we basically, you know, at the same time, I think, just started down that path of of using heroin. 
This is Hooked, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. I'm Josh Dean. When you cook it up, you're not wasting any of it. You're getting all of it. Part three, Disneyland Dad. Tony is often telling me that probably his favorite thing on earth is being a dad. And having spent so much time talking to him over a period of years now, it's clear to me that Tony truly does love his kids, and they love him too. But his addiction didn't always allow him to live up to his potential as a father. Still, he tried. After splitting with his girlfriend Val, when Val kicked him out, Tony moved to be near Connor and Madison. His new home was an apartment in the same complex where his ex-wife Anne Marie was living, with both kids. Connor was a handful by this point. He was wild, defiant, a little reckless. Connor had been living with his mom, and she was having a hard time with him because he was partying and doing drugs and blah, blah, blah. So Connor moved into Tony's spare bedroom in the townhouse across the way. So the thought was, well, maybe if he comes and lives with me. But what she didn't know is I'm already addicted to Oxycontin. Moving in with his dad didn't resolve Connor's substance abuse problems. But Tony was in such a downward spiral himself, he didn't notice his kid was struggling too. Substance use has pretty much always been a problem for me, like pretty much right out the jump. I started getting into trouble, like after sixth grade, started smoking weed and experimenting with all kinds of other drugs because I figured out if weed's not bad like they told me it was, then, you know, I wonder what other drugs aren't bad, you know, just a dumbass kid. And so I just, yeah, experimented. Tony understood that this was part of the deal of being a parent. You have to let your kids try things for themselves and sometimes make mistakes. In most cases, they get through it, even bad phases. You know, I mean, he had already been experimenting with smoking a little pot here and there and drinking. I just looked at it like he's doing the same shit I did. You know, I wish he wasn't doing it because, you know, like any parent you want, you know, you don't want to see your kids out going to parties and drinking and, you know. Tony also knew where this could lead. His drinking as a teenager got so bad that he had to go to rehab. He didn't drink for a full decade. But despite his own bout with alcoholism, Tony understood that teens experimented. He just wanted his own son to be safe about it. There's many, many times that he would call me and uh, late at night and I would have to go pick him up. You know, he's at a party. And, you know, we always had that kind of relationship. Hey, if you're out with your friends and you're drinking and you're, you don't have a safe ride home, you call me anytime, I'll come pick you up. And uh, there was a lot of that. <laughs> Now, trying to be buddies with your kids is tricky. Tony's casual attitude about discipline and boundaries, the same attitude that made him super fun when his kids were little, seemed to be less effective as they started to grow up, especially with Connor. Connor's experimentation, as he calls it, eventually it progressed beyond weed to whatever drugs he could find. Cough syrup, cocaine, LSD, ecstasy. Yet for all Connor's experimenting with drugs, nothing could have prepared him for Oxycontin. Purdue Pharma's miracle drug. Opioids like this were a whole other level of powerful, but surreptitiously so. The very first time I did it, I was surprised that that was all it was, just a feeling like that little warm, fuzzy feeling. It was just a simple feeling. I'm like, that's what people get addicted to? Like, what? I, I didn't really get it. But yeah, that's, that's how it gets you, because it's just like, it doesn't seem like something that's that bad. His first taste of Oxy came at age 13, an 80-milligram pill he swiped from his dad's prescription stash. 
I knew my dad was getting the Oxycontins, the 80s, you know, oh, they're green and oh, you can smoke them and oh, they're $60 a pill. I would hear this stuff at school and, you know, the places I would hang out. Um, so I'd steal them from him. He figured correctly that his dad probably wasn't keeping a strict inventory. No, I didn't notice because I, I, I mean, I, yeah, it's not like I was counting them. I was getting a ton of them. I mean, it never even occurred to me that, oh, my son would be taking some of my pills because I didn't, I didn't know like this was a thing that kids in high school were doing. This is part of what makes Oxycontin so dangerous. For many families, a parent's worst nightmare was often lurking inconspicuously right inside the medicine cabinet. It actually started out like on the weekends or something, like one weekend and then the next weekend or something. It's like, yeah, we should get a little more of that. And then it's every weekend and then it's during the week and then before you know it, it's every day. It was probably about three months after I started doing it. I just started feeling like crap waking up in the morning and I would take a little hit or whatever and feel instantly better and then, you know, that was it. Pretty soon I started feeling worse and worse every day and then that was always the thing that made me feel better. And then I knew I was in trouble. I was like, oh. His mom saw what was happening and tried to get Connor into a long-term program. He had already been to treatment maybe once or twice. And um, he was like 15. And there was a place in Eastern Washington that was a year and a half program. It was a treatment center. And I filled out all the information. Then I showed Tony, and he was like, no, no, that's just too long. It's too long. It's not. And I'm like, no, we want to nip it in the bud. Like, let's get it. And he's like, nah. And I'm like, mm, you know. And I couldn't do that on my own. You know, I was like, I hate to think, but maybe it would have helped. Maybe not, but. You still think about it? Mm-hmm. It's hard not to wonder what might have happened, how this story could have turned out differently. But Connor didn't go to that program. He stayed home. And eventually, his troubles worsened. Then his dad fell into the same hole. Tony and Connor's struggles with substances will become so intertwined that, looking back, it's hard to unravel one from the other. But what's clear is that once they moved in together, their addictions could easily feed off each other. And they did. Scientists are still stalking the gene, or genes, that lead to higher rates of alcohol addiction. The consensus is that a genetic link exists. But when you're talking about addiction to other substances, especially opioids, genes become insignificant. With highly addictive drugs, which are different from alcohol and cannabis, almost anybody who takes the drug repeatedly can become addicted. This is the opioid expert you heard last week, Dr. Andrew Kolodny. I've treated plenty of people who became opioid addicted because they were taking opioids for fun, and I've treated plenty of people who became opioid addicted, taking opioids, prescribed them exactly by their doctors. Here, with Tony and Connor, you had both scenarios under the same roof. The root of this has been overexposing the U.S. population to this highly addictive drug. When you look at a timeline of the opioid epidemic, you often see it broken down into waves. The first wave, brought by OxyContin's release in 1996, vastly widened who was exposed to opiates. And over the next decade and a half, with doctors being pushed and convinced to overprescribe the drug, opioid prescriptions soared into the millions, and deaths involving those legal prescriptions rose as well. Increased crime came along with that too. And we now know that it wasn't just the deaths that went up, 
addiction went up in parallel with the rise in the prescribing. For many prescription opioid users, like Tony, 2010 was a watershed moment. I think it was around September of 2010 is when Purdue Pharma changed the formula on the Oxycontin so that you couldn't really use it anymore. In August, the maker of Oxycontin, Purdue Pharma, began producing a new formulation. It has a special coating, which is supposed to make it more difficult to crush and snort. Remember this? Purdue reformulated its blockbuster drug so that the new pills would turn to gel if you tried to dissolve them or crush them up. At this point, Tony's been addicted to Oxycontin for about four years. And, uh, you know, once they changed the formula, they were as useless as a ibuprofen. You couldn't give them away. For a little while, batches of the old formula could be found, but the price soared. The prescription opioids are very expensive on the black market, so they've been switching to heroin. That's Dr. Kolodny speaking on Democracy Now! in 2017, but the DEA when every news outlet seemed to be on to the story. People transitioning to heroin from prescription drugs like OxyContin. Wisconsin, we've certainly seen an increase in heroin abuse, and the abuse pattern has changed. We all tell ourselves stories to make sense of our choices later on. And this is Tony's version of his own story. Purdue changed the formula, Oxys became useless, and that's basically what forced him to turn to heroin. Certainly that's part of it. But here's what I think. It's easier for Tony to blame a powerful pharmaceutical company than it is for him to blame himself, or the person he loves more than almost anyone else on earth. Which brings us back to Connor, and that day in the bedroom, that afternoon we described at the top when Connor introduced his dad to heroin. He comes to my room and says, what are you guys doing? I'm like, uh, smoking? <laughs> on that day, again, as a teenager, he really thought he was helping his dad through a bad time. Simple as that. It was only much later that he realized the day was a turning point. And then, yeah, it just kind of went from there, downhill fast. It's a situation that's hard for any human, especially a parent, to understand. I'm a dad too. We've got two little boys who like Disneyland and baseball and pancakes. The idea of using drugs with them, using heroin, I just can't wrap my head around it. But also, I'm not addicted to opiates. I wouldn't understand. Yeah, I mean, any rational person would say, oh, what a fucking idiot. You're using heroin with your kid, right? But when you're an addict and you're addicted to it, you're not thinking rationally. That's how quickly this happened. Tony and Connor went from being roommates who both used Oxy and didn't talk about it, to roommates who both used Oxy and sort of pretended they weren't codependent, to roommates who openly used heroin together. But of course, they weren't roommates. They were father and son. And of all of Tony's mistakes, this seems to be the one he has the greatest difficulty facing. He wasn't able to step out of himself and be a dad. To say to his son, let me help you. He should have done it, but he didn't. He just couldn't. And I wish I could tell you that everything got better. Instead, here's what actually happened. For the next year or so, father and son became drug buddies. Tony worked, in part, to keep them supplied. In their reality, they were adapting as best they could. I think for the first, I would say the first year or maybe year and a half, I only smoked it. And then I s tried shooting it once and that was a wrap. Because <laughs> once you shoot it, you're, you're never gonna go smoke it again. Because it's just so much better. 
and it's it goes a lot further you know because like when you're let's say you go buy like a gram of heroin that's like a hundred bucks or 90 bucks for a gram when you smoke it you're not getting all of it right because some of it's burning on the foil you're not getting the whole thing you wasted less it also hits faster and harder so tony's addiction escalated to the next level the drug had basically hijacked his brain much later, Connor would hear a metaphor that, to him, perfectly illustrates the power opiates have over an addict. Yeah, I've had a doctor describe it to me like, um, it works on the same part of your brain that controls your instincts. So if you were stranded in the desert, uh, you know, dehydrating, and you know, you need some water, that part of your brain that's telling you to go and search water is the same part of your brain that's telling you you need to get drugs, you need to get heroin, you need to get a well. <laughs> like it's, you know, gonna kill you if you don't have it. Tony and Connor's lives quickly began to revolve around getting a heroin fix. And the whole time, in a townhouse across the way, was Tony's ex-wife, Anne-Marie, who saw them often. She said something was off, but she didn't know exactly what. As it went on, I'm like, where's the, where's the fucking family furniture? This was a far cry from Disneyland Dad. It was like her son and his father were living in a flop house. Like, it just didn't feel right. And then I remember, and then it got to a point where I was asking Tony, I'm like, what's going on with your medicine? Like, what, are you okay? Like, what is happening? Because you seem like you're, and he's like, oh, I'm fine, you know? And I'm like, well, and then I set him down and I looked at him and, because Connor was just kind of going just crazy. And I looked at him and I go, is Connor okay? And, and he looked at me and he said, yes. But of course, Anne-Marie's instincts were right. He was not okay. Oh, I mean, she knew something was up. She offered for me to come stay with her. She saw her. She told me I can come stay with her. I'm like, yeah, no, can't do that. <laughs> a, I wouldn't be able to get my dope, and B, you know, it's my dad. We're kind of in this together, you know, so there was that. Well, I mean, I kind of got him into the situation, sort of, I felt like, so, yeah, I just wasn't going to leave. It wasn't just about maintaining access. It was also a matter of being there should something go terribly wrong. This is a pretty remarkable burden for a teenager to carry. That his own father's survival may hinge on them sticking together. It went both ways. Tony sure felt the weight. At some point, one of us was going to overdose, you know? And, I mean, that's kind of part of the reason we stuck together. Because at any given time, he could have gone to live with his mom. But he didn't want to leave me alone. And... I didn't want him to be alone, <laughs> you know? Tony and Connor felt as if they were stuck in their own little two-person prison. The merciless reality of their addiction was shrinking their world smaller and smaller, literally, because Tony couldn't even afford the rent on their townhouse anymore. They had no choice. They moved out of their apartment, stuffed a few of their meager belongings, just clothes mostly in a laptop, into Tony's Subaru. The only place to go in that moment. One day when I was visiting him in Seattle, Tony took me to see the place where they ended up back in the spring of 2010. So Tony, where are we sitting right now? So this is the um, parking lot at Boeing where my son and I used to spend the night when we were living in the car, homeless. Yes, Tony and Connor were living in their car at Tony's work while he was still employed there. You might wonder how that's even possible. Well, 
The Boeing compound in Everett is just enormous. The factory itself, where Boeing makes a variety of planes, including the 747 that Tony worked on, is the largest building on the planet. And it's surrounded by this vast ocean of parking lots, one of which was the parking lot where he hurt his back, the injury that started this whole collapse. But that's not the one Tony's led me to. You can think of that period like there were two Tonys. There was the daylight public-facing Tony, who went to work and sat in meetings, drawing up renderings of jumbo jet galleys. This guy. Get up in the morning, he would drive me over to the, the Boeing gym so I could shower and get ready for work. And then uh, drive me back over here and drop me off and uh, come back and pick me up later in the day when my shift was over. He managed to hide the truth from friends and even family. You know, because Tony put on a good facade, he would go to Boeing, he'd go to work. The heck, you know? But under that competent professional facade was the Twilight Tony, the one desperately trying to avoid the utter hell of dope sickness. Literally anything is preferable to that state, even living in a car with your kid. We used to come in here at night around shift change when third shift would come on around 10, 10.30 at night and find a little parking spot and uh, sit here and do our thing and watch movies on the laptop and basically just sleep. I just remember sleeping in there, watching a movie on the laptop, <laughs> smoking cigarettes and smoking heroin, and that was it. So you were homeless but employed at Boeing? Homeless but employed and addicted to heroin. Tony was holding on to his job like a lifeline, the last thread connecting him to a normal functioning life. Being part of this giant team that made airplanes, right there in the biggest building in the world, it represented pride and purpose and distant horizons. Ideas that seemed important to cling to, now that his world had shrunken down to the cabin of a Subaru. Connor can't recall exactly how long that period lasted. Yeah, I don't know, it seems like it was long, long time. We were in that damn car. <laughs> I mean, are, are there moments where you're like, this fucks? Oh, the whole time, yeah. The whole time it's fucked. It's not like, well, this is so great. Like, I'm having a good time doing this. No. <laughs> real bonding experience. Yeah, this is great. Like, oh, man, more, more people should do this. You know, this is a great life experience. You know, blog about it, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not like that. Connor wasn't in the car when Tony took me there, but a producer named Bethany was. This is kind of a strange question, but do you have any, like, funny or like happy memories from when you were in the car, living in the car? Like something funny that happened or? No, no. What's it like to be here now? This question really shook Tony and he went silent for a long time. He hadn't been back to the spot since 2011 and I could tell he was trying to find the right words. It just brings back a, a lot of uh, really bad memories. <laughs> I mean, the more I sit here and think about it, you know, just, it, fuck, it was just so terrible what we went through together. He's thick-skinned, you know. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't get as emotional as I do about it, but I think at the same time, you know, it's I'm the dad and he's my son. Right. So if, you know, you asked if I can think of any happy, funny memories of living in that car. And the, there's, there's nothing. I can't think of one happy second that we had. 
Tony's a likable guy. He's very friendly, adores his kids, and has a good heart. I really believe that. But I also don't blame you if you aren't feeling that way. I've listened to Tony talk and cry about this time at length. He never shies away. And even after so many months and years of talking to him, this still surprises me. That a person would want to own up to all this so publicly. To tell these stories. There's just no doubt that he considers this whole chapter to be a giant failure. Yeah, I mean, every day <laughs> I knew I was, this was a fucked up situation. You know, that I don't want to be in this situation and I don't, clearly don't want to see my son in this situation. When you talk to enough addicts, people who have completely lost themselves in a drug, especially heroin, you come to realize something very important. Their lowest point is not a situation you can judge objectively, from the outside, looking in. In the addict's seat, there is no logic. There's only fog and the next fix. But you don't, you just can't, you can't, you can't find your way out of it. You know, it's, it's every day. Every day we're trying to figure out how to get out of this, this hell we're living in. Yeah, it was, fuck, it was the worst, the worst place you could ever want to find yourself in, you know? And I know people always say, oh, well, you should have done something. You should have helped your son. You should have, well, that sounds good, <laughs> you know? And, and I certainly can't argue that, but it's, I mean, yeah, it's easier said than done. I told Tony what Connor had told me, that he doesn't blame his dad. He was the one who used heroin first. He opened that door. But still, he's a kid. Tony is his father. The math here isn't complicated. I'm his dad, right? I'm, I'm supposed to be the, you know, the good example and a good role model. And uh, even though we came about our addiction through kind of different paths, in a way, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm supposed to protect him. And, and uh, you know, I didn't do that. I wish I could do it over again, but I can't. It's hard to imagine having that kind of regret. And who knows, in the depths of addiction, maybe that's what being a good dad actually looks like. If there even is such a thing. The good news, I suppose, is that Connor was young enough that he seems to have come out the other side without any sort of grudge against his dad. Kids are a lot more resilient than middle-aged men. Probably more forgiving, too. Yeah, definitely hard to believe that I got there. It's like I, I think about it sometimes, and it just doesn't even seem like it actually happened to me. It seemed like it was a whole other life. <laughs> you know, it seems like a movie I saw or something, you know? It's like it just it doesn't seem like this that whole story happened to me. The whole story Connor's talking about, if you can believe it, has one more escalation, one more twist. Because Tony and Connor weren't out of the hole yet. They were at a standstill, so they decided to pivot and try something new. An innovative, if socially unacceptable, and definitely illegal solution. So it's kind of hard to have a rational conversation about this because you have to really get yourself to the point of where we were at when we actually did this, right? We're both severely addicted to heroin. We've already been addicted to Oxycontin for years prior to that. So, I mean, we're in terrible shape not really thinking rational. So yeah, we're kicking around a lot of ideas. Very bad ideas. Like I said, we had no gas, nowhere to live. 
and I still, I'm still trying to go to work at Boeing and act like everything's just gravy, right? I asked Tony if he could remember how they decided what they were going to do. No. That was really was kind of a spur of the moment situation. He does remember where the idea came up, though. At a place they would go sometimes when they had enough money to take a break from the car. We were staying at Andy's Motel, which is a beautiful little place down the street. Uh, I'm obviously kidding. It's an absolute, yeah. It's, Anybody <laughs> it's one of those places, right? And I think we had talked about this a little bit for a couple days, but it really all came together kind of the night before because we were completely out of money. So I think that night we were in the in the motel and we kind of <laughs> kind of sketched out. I mean, you know, we kind of drafted up an escape plan, how it was all going to go down. Yeah, actually on a piece of cardboard, like the inside of a cereal box or something. He just ripped a piece off it and started drawing roads. And he's like, look, here's this one and here's this one. And this is what we're going to do, just like this. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going there like this. You get where this is going. Tony is sketching out a plan for his very first robbery. I was going to go in and rob the bank, and he was going to be the my getaway driver. Oh, no. It's even worse. His teenage son is going to be the accomplice. I mean, robbing a bank, obviously a stupid idea, especially to do it with your own kid. But I mean, it was just desperation. That desperate notion, they actually went through with it. Okay, but let's be clear. We had no money, no dope, no cigarettes. We were almost out of gas. And this is a bank that we were very familiar with. And it seemed like, you know, we kind of had a nice little getaway plan. And uh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work very well. It wasn't it, exactly Ocean's Eleven. It was Ocean's two fucking dummies, basically. It was a disaster. That's next week on Hooked. Hooked is an Apple original podcast produced by Campsite Media. The executive producers are Mark McAdam and me, Josh Dean. Our producer is Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Our story editor is Michelle Lands, and Sierra Franco is the associate producer. Fact-checking on this episode by Will Peichel. Additional reporting and research by Callie Hitchcock. Field producing on this episode by Bethany Denton and Kyle Norris. Original music by Mark McAdam and Doug Slaywin. Editorial support from Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and me, Josh Dean. If you're enjoying Hooked, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really does help other people find the show, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.